This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Again, another bang-up jobs number uh, today. Some good news for folks that really take a look at jobs as a driver of this economy. And earlier today, speaking from the White House, President Biden said July's jobs report shows that his economic policies are working. Let's take a listen. What is indisputable now is this. The Biden plan is working. The Biden plan produces results. And the Biden plan is moving the country forward. We're now the first administration in history to add jobs every single month on our first six months in office. All right. That was President Biden, uh, I would say, taking a little bit of a victory lap there on the strong uh, data coming out of uh, the labor market. Let's bring in Lindsay Piegs, uh, chief economist for Stiefel Financial. She joins us on the phone from Wisconsin. So, Lindsay, you know, on the surface, it seemed like a really, really solid number. It's not that million dollar, uh, that million job number that people were hoping for at some point here, but still very strong. What's your takeaway? Well, it certainly was very strong. And to your point, if we actually add in uh, the the revisions from June and May, right. the overall change was actually well over a million new jobs added to the U.S. economy. So I think this was a very strong report all around. Really hard to find weakness in that type of jobs number. But, 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 <laughs> and this is what Michael McKee talked to us a little bit about and Dave Wilson earlier, it, it covers the first two weeks of the month. That's when the survey data comes in. So that wasn't when we were talking about the Delta variant. That wasn't when companies were saying, do not return to the office uh, in September. Uh, how does that affect the way that hiring is going to go uh, in this period? Well, there is some fear that that the impact from the Delta variant is is going to have an impact going forward. But at least for now, businesses don't appear to be deterred from continuing to add employees as we as we continue to attempt to reach this this new normal. Now, to your point, we have seen the fear of the Delta variant delay some companies reopening, requiring employees to go back to work. But that doesn't necessarily translate into the second part of the equation, which is layoffs or a slower pace of hiring. This just speaks to a different way that we are working. And right now, Still, restaurants, uh, hotels, the travel industry, these industries that were the hardest hit are those that are most desperate to get employees back in the doors so that they can reopen to full capacity. But the one constraint that they are seeing is the limited pool of available labor. So I do think that this report could actually be, it could have been, excuse me, even stronger if we saw more workers available and ready to go back to work. Do you expect that to materially change over the next several weeks as schools reopen? I know, for example, California uh, reopens a lot of their schools Monday. Uh, A lot of other schools in the south and the west have already reopened. And here in the northeast, uh, kind of after Labor Day, for a lot of people, we hear that child care and back to school is a really big issue. Do you factor that into your outlook for labor? Oh, absolutely. According to the BLS, there's some 7 million Americans that report they are currently sidelined from the labor force because of daycare or or child care issues. And as we see America's youth return to full-time in-person learning, 
I do think that's going to create a, a lot less pressure on the labor market. Also, as we see some of these uh, federal programs expire, enhanced unemployment benefits expire, and also vaccination rates continue to rise, that's going to eliminate some of the fear of contracting or spreading the virus or even the new Delta variant. So as we move forward, there are a lot of factors that are on the, the positive side for the economy to continue this recovery at a very robust pace. Lindsay, when Fed Chair Jay Powell sees a month like this with those May and June upward revisions as well, how does he change his thinking at the Fed? Well, policymakers have been very clear that they will continue to wait for further substantial progress, particularly when it comes to the labor market, before adjusting accommodation. Now, certainly one report is not going to be enough to dictate a change in policy, but it certainly moves the ball. It moves the Fed closer to at least releasing an outline for an eventual adjustment to policy, with, of course, taper being that first step. And we continue to anticipate an outline being released as early as later this month, with a formal announcement coming uh, for taper by the end of the year. So that does make the actual taper event, at least in my opinion, a 2022 event pushing that first rate increase out to 2023 or beyond. So even as the data continues to strengthen, we're still looking at a Fed likely to be very accommodative, very patient for quite some time. Lindsay, has the Delta variant altered um, Stiefel's outlook for GDP for the remainder of this year into next year? Well, we had already factored in a lingering fear of the virus and potentially a second round resurgence around the fall, the time when we start to see flu season set in. So we had anticipated that some return of restrictions would be placed in the country, not the onerous restrictions that we saw in 2020, but certainly a return of mask mandates. This this was not unanticipated uh, by ourselves or or I think many economists trying to uh, factor in these uh, uncertainties. But I think the biggest component right now is the change in policy metrics, specifically coming out of the federal government. When you talk about uh, stopping the the influx of trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars into the economy, that's going to have a material effect on top-line GDP. When we look at the organic components, the consumer is extremely strong. Wage growth growth up at 4%. Housing, manufacturing services all running at full speed. The economy is well-established, but it will be slower than the 6.5% at the start of the year. Lindsay Piegza, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it, as always. Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist for Stiefel Financial. Paul Sweeney, Tim Stenevec, and the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio in New York. Paul, earlier this week, you and I... uh, Got the news in the afternoon that the New York Auto Show right. was canceled. We were discussing that it, it felt like one of those moments, like from March of 2020, where you think things are going a certain way, and then you start hearing about these events being canceled, yep. and that that changes things. Um, in, indeed, the Delta variant is increasingly threatening some parts of the U.S. economy. Reed Pickert writes about it on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com. She's U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News. She's on the phone in Washington, D.C. Reed, help us make sense of the jobs report that we got today coming at a time when companies are saying, wait a second, we told you to come back to the office in September. Hold that thought. Maybe October, maybe January. Absolutely. So so the Delta variant, as we all know, is spreading rapidly. And as a result, it's injected a lot of uncertainty into the economic outlook in just a couple of weeks. So we got a fantastic jobs report today. Um, But the key thing to keep in mind about it is that it's a snapshot of mid-July. 
So in the weeks since then, Delta has escalated, and companies like BlackRock and Amazon have all pushed back their return to work dates. Um, and as you mentioned just now, you've also started to see conventions start to get canceled. Um, so we've, we're trying to monitor high-frequency data as a result. Um, and you're start, just starting to see um, there it might be having an impact on spending, particularly on things like entertainment and travel. Um, but, it, you know, the key with these high-frequency indicators is there is a lot of noise. So interpreting this volatile data on a week-to-week basis can be quite challenging. Yeah, it, it, it does. But I think it's really helpful for those that can really spend the time with it because I think about certain data points like uh, open table, you know, restaurants. Where's the restaurant traffic? What are we seeing in the last week or two? Because as Tim and I have been talking about, it just feels like this Delta variant discussion is really heated up over the last couple of weeks. Right. So, so right now with the open table data, we haven't seen a clear downward trend yet. But the thing that did stick out to me that I thought was quite interesting, um, so there's a company called Castle Systems, which essentially tracks um, electronic op- access to office buildings. So, uh-huh. you know, think of like the little fob that you often yep. wipe to get into your office building on each day. And you, you started to see this pullback um, last week from its pandemic peak just a week earlier. And so we're starting to kind of see these moments where it's not, you know, you're not sure if it's, um, a, a one-week thing or the start of a broader trend. Uh, but the fact that it could be the start of a broader trend is part of why there's all of the economic uncertainty that we have and plays a lot into, you know, how long we think this is going to last, what um, what the economic effects are going to be. Um, but when it comes to monthly data, things like the jobs report, we're going to have to wait a little while until we can actually start to see any impact in those figures. Paul and I were talking about this during during the break, and it's, it seems like at least the way that we're living right now, right. It, I haven't pulled back my spending. I'm still going into the office. Maybe it's, you know, the metro New York area has got generally a high vaccination rate. Great point. Maybe, you know, um, it'll be interesting to see on, on the regional side. Reed, what is the other data that we should really be keeping an eye on? Because you do point out that total spending using Bank of America debit and credit cards decelerated meaningfully last week, according to economists from the bank. Mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan actually had a note out today as well um, using their Chase card spending data that showed um, a similar kind of picture in terms of a pullback in spending on travel um, and entertainment um, categories. Um, but it, but I, I do want to talk a little bit about today's jobs report, if that's okay. Yeah, because please. I, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, not often do we get to talk about a report that's kind of great across the board. There's This obviously had a couple caveats, um, and like every report does. Um, but I think it showed us that heading into this the Delta variant, we had a lot of momentum. So not only did we get you know more jobs than we expected um, for the July report, but we also saw a pretty significant upward revision to the prior month as well. So you had all this job growth. You saw unemployment decline more than most people thought. Um, And you saw the number of long-term unemployed or the folks who have been um, out of work for 27 weeks or more fall by the most on record. Um, So there's definitely this sense that you have this massive wave of economic momentum heading into Delta. um, And obviously Delta proposes, you know, adds uncertainty. But for now, most economists see Delta as a downside risk rather than changing, right. fundamentally changing their baseline forecast. 
Hey, Reed, thanks so much for this. We really appreciate uh, your reporting here. Reed Pickert, U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Again, this the, the narrative we've had, Tim, for the last you know, 17, 18 months, it is, what is a virus? What is a coronavirus? Right. What do, we, what do we name it? What do we call it? And, oh, my gosh, this is bad. This is much worse than we thought. This is not just going to go away. Uh, then it became one, thankfully, of, of shutdowns and all that thing. And then it became, oh, my goodness, these vaccines came. And they came perhaps earlier than we thought. And, oh, boy, are they efficient and did they get the job done. And now it seems to be getting jabs into people and vaccination rates and mass. And, but now we've got a Delta variant. It is and, throwing a wrench in everything. Yeah, it seems like we're just hitting rewind a little bit here. And, and again, the discussion points are, boy, we've got to get people vaccinated. And two, um, mass. We have to have that discussion again. Yeah. And I think that's coming back. It's definitely coming back, especially in, in the context of school, Paul. It's it's interesting because, and I've talked about this this week, but there is this era of uncertainty around corporate earnings, and at least when it comes to guidance, and companies just don't know what the Delta variant is going to do in terms of changing consumer behavior. Uh, Peter Kern, the Expedia Group CEO and vice chair, was on Bloomberg TV earlier today. He said that even though this isn't COVID all over again, like this isn't lockdowns, right. at least here in the U.S., when it it's a, it's more of a wave, right? When cases go up, local governments around the world change their recommendations. Some, he said, like Australia, lockdown, that changes things, and it changes things in an unforeseen way. Yeah, it it does, and it just kind of just reminds us um, that this is going to be with us for a while in some form, and it's a question of how has has been from the beginning uh, how we alter our behavior, how we deal with it, how we engage with it on, on a daily basis. Thankfully, you know, the vac- many many people are vaccinated in many parts of the world. Uh, unfortunately, many parts of the world are, are tremendously under-vaccinated, and, and that's where the focus needs to go uh, on a global scale. But given that there is good vaccination rates in many parts of the world, uh, you know, we're told by the experts that this is this is different. Um, we can live with this. We can work through this. Um, and But there may be some time for some asking. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit more about the virus and vaccines because it is the cover of this week's Bloomberg Business Week. It's available on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com slash Business Week. It is a double issue. It has a fantastic, uh, ho- uh, fantastic group of stories. Joel Weber is editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us now on the remote from Massachusetts. I want to start, Joel, uh, with the with the cover here. Uh Vaccine mandates for kids is the next big back-to-school fight. It is the cover story by Riley Griffin and Susie Ring. Uh, Take us uh, into—we talked to you earlier this week about the story. Take us into the cover, though. Um, Who is it, and and how did you choose it? Amazingly, this is uh, the daughter of one of our art directors on the staff. (laughs) Really? This is not a stock photo? Yeah, not a stock photo, and uh, we shot it last weekend. Um, she actually uh, is a GAP model or has been a GAP model. She <laughs> kind of took her out of her uh, retirement. Did you, uh, did you have to get her agent to approve, approve this? Dad approved. Okay, yeah, good. We did, not, we did not pay dad <laughs> for, for this. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, you know, we tried to look a little bit into the future with this story because we're just around the corner from the school year uh, starting. Um, we're going to have uh, a real moment here with society when schools reopen and kids who, you know, obviously below 12 don't have um, vaccination abilities yet, but 12 to 17, we've seen really lackluster numbers. And so we're going to see a really interesting moment here if schools decide to mandate vaccines as kids begin going back to school, those that can get vaccines. And then 
you know, potentially as early as the beginning of the new year, we could see um, kids under 12 start to get vaccinated as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And Joel, you probably saw the, the news, but here in the, in the state of New Jersey, where I live, uh, the Governor Murphy just announced that schools uh, will require masking. Uh, everybody's coming back full service, everybody in the, in the, in the classroom, but uh, going to require mask. And that uh, appears to be one path forward in some some states. Uh, I think I think of Florida, maybe taking a different path. <laughs> it's going to be yeah, safe to say. If, and, and you know, masking is divisive, and and you know, vaccination is is that plus like times yes. a thousand really. Um, and what we know though is the the Delta variant being such a variable here. Um, I think we're going to see more and more states come around to uh, a masking mandate at least for school as sort of a. Uh, uh, an entry point, right? And obviously, I think some of those uh, decisions are going to break down uh, politically, at least along state lines. But yeah, that, that masking mandate is sort of part of it. And the vaccination t- discussion isn't far beyond. Now, keep in mind, the other variable in all of this is that schools mandate vaccines all the time. You know, though it's different about the COVID one is that we still don't have and the FDA backing, and that FDA backing is sort of the thing that everybody's watching for. Yeah. We're still under the emergency use authorization. I don't imagine, though, that people who are declining shots right now are going to be lining up once the FDA fully approves these vaccines. But it, you know, we'll it, see. Because of Delta, we've actually seen some uptick in places uh, uh, in terms of inoculations in places that have been heretofore slow to adopt. So it, it, it is yet another thing that can hopefully help overcome some hesitancy. One thing that we were also talking about this week, Joel, and it's in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week, is the mad rush to deliver groceries in 10 minutes. VCs have bet billions of dollars uh, on getting you bananas and beer in a very short period of time. (laughs) Uh, What's the opportunity there? This is a story by uh, Alex Webb of uh, Bloomberg Quick Take over in London. The illustration for this story is awesome. It's a little beer can with rocket jets on on, (laughs) attached to its back. Um, There Obviously, there have been the Instacart kind of services that have effectively teamed up with grocery stores to do delivery for the past year. But the other phenomenon is this new thing where we're seeing basically what are dark stores pop up. And those th- these locations are actually their own services. Things like Gorillas is a, is a, is a, is a one. Getter is another. GoPuff is another. There's other ones. Even New York has its own versions of this. But they're all promising basically to be able to deliver uh, groceries within 10 to 15 or 20 minutes. And VC has spotted a huge opportunity here to disrupt the corner deli. Those corner delis um, have long been very profitable. um, And by pouring a ton of VC money into this, it's opened up an opportunity. But the thing is that that window is, is dependent upon um, being there without that much competition. And we're already seeing so many competitors that, potentially the profit won't won't be sustainable i love the corner bodega i know i do too i, I think most who, neighborhoods who would do. want to take it from you right yeah. <laughs> i had to go to ours this morning uh to get some milk we ran out of milk and oh. it was closed I had to oh. go to, it was too early i had to go to one that was way further away and i was actually thinking about this story yeah because it was like the one time where i needed to get milk in 10 minutes or less joel weber is, weber is editor at bloomberg business week joining us each and every day here on bloomberg business week you heard paul earlier mention new jersey governor phil murphy mandating masks in schools as cases increase among a younger population that next month is going to start in-person lessons. Also, some other virus headlines, uh, United becoming the first major U.S. carrier to require employee inoculation. Uh, and J.P. Morgan Chase, as we talked about earlier, is bringing back its mask requirement, uh, as Amazon did, 
for frontline workers, even for those people who have already been vaccinated. So a host of virus news to get to. Let's do it as we do each and every Friday with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York City. Dr. Lusbader, always great to check in with you on Fridays. It feels different now. And I know I, I don't I don't want to I, I don't want to say that we're not looking at the data because the data is different. And that's why it does feel different. I think uh, where are we in terms of getting out of this pandemic? Uh, hello, Tim and Paul. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, I think in terms of the pandemic, uh, it's becoming pretty obvious that essentially everyone, certainly in the United States and globally, is going to be exposed to the Delta variant. Uh, we always, even at the beginning of this with vaccines and so forth, two years ago, talked about slowing the spread. And I think that's really all we can hope for is to slow the spread. Everyone is going to be exposed at this rate. Uh, the vaccinated people certainly have an advantage uh, in the sense that at this time, it looks like the vaccines, even as antibody levels drop a bit, are really avoiding, um, for the most part, hospitalizations and severe disease. You know, the unvaccinated uh, typically will get a bad cold, but certainly a significant percent uh, will get hospitalized. And at this point, it looks like the vast majority of patients who are hospitalized with COVID are unvaccinated. So vaccines are one arm. Everyone is going to be exposed. Even those who uh, have been vaccinated may well get Delta to one degree or another. It looks like they will avoid severe disease. And we're relying on other uh, things to kind of hold things up. Masks, for example, which also are not a cure-all by any means. They do reduce spread, maybe 50 to 70%, depending on the kind of mask. Obviously, the N95 is more effective. So I think what we're doing is trying to um, have a variety of techniques to, to mitigate, um, because we're really not going to stop the pandemic at this point. There are just too many people who are unvaccinated. Uh, it's too hard to distribute all these vaccines. And I think all we can do is do our best to sort of protect vulnerable people uh, while the pandemic plays out. And this is really what happened in 1918, unfortunately, without vaccines. But it took about three years for everyone to get infected, 50 million plus dead. Uh, and ultimately, it went away. And I think that's what's going to happen here. But there will be more carnage uh, before that happens. Dr. Lusbader, I want to get a sense of timing, if we can even do that, in terms of this Delta variant. Is this something that could burn itself out quickly, or is this going to stay around? I'm thinking about some of the short surges we saw in the U.K. and in Israel. Um, is that what we're going to see here, or is this going to be here for longer in terms of this variant? You know, I think that's a good question. I think in the next few months, we are going to have a significant increase in cases throughout the United States. And basically, everyone in the U.S., probably by the end of the year, will be exposed. And whoever gets sick, um, you know, will get sick. And so I think in the U.S., it probably will burn itself out. Globally, it probably will continue. And of course, as it continues globally, there's risk of other variants. So I think Delta will burn itself out in the United States. Fortunately, it doesn't seem to be much worse than the original Alpha variant, maybe in some pockets, uh, certainly much more contagious. 
but I don't think COVID will go away, and it may even become a chronic illness like influenza where you do get a yearly shot. We don't really know that yet. Hopefully that won't happen. It did not happen in 1918 with influenza, which is different. Um, But I agree with you. I think we're going to see a surge in the next few months and then probably a significant drop in cases as the wave goes through the United States. Is this the last wave of the of, of this pandemic? Good question. As I think at the end of this wave, everyone in the United States, 300 million plus, will have been exposed one way or wow. another to COVID. Either they've, they will have had the vaccine, they will have had the disease, of, or they will have um, you know recovered or died. So I think in the U.S. come mid-year, I think we'll be in a somewhat better place if there's still new variants that are coming up and our antibody levels are dropping, which they probably will. We may need a booster sometime, you know, late fall, uh, early winter. The, The FDA hasn't really commented about that. Most people that I've checked still have good antibody levels. Some are still getting Delta because uh, the Delta is a little resistant, has mutated enough so that our antibodies um, don't fully uh, capture it. So if a new strain were to come along that's significantly different, that could be a problem come, you know, next spring. You know, Dr. Tim and I always like to, when we have uh, experts and frontline uh, healthcare workers on, we like to ask how the folks at your facility are doing. It's been such a long 17 months. How are they doing right now? So, you know, I think the hospitals in New York really had a terrible uh, siege um, a year ago, year and a half ago. We were really the epicenter. Uh, fortunately, now the the case rate, the incidence is somewhere 3% uh, plus or minus. There are not many cases in the hospital. All of those cases are unvaccinated. Uh, most are doing fairly well. So I think this area in the Northeast is doing fairly well. That is not the case in other parts of the country. So I think in in the northeast or the tri-state area here, I think we're going to be okay. You know, kids with masks and so forth, I think maybe treating ourselves more than treating the disease. But, um, you know, there, there are pros and cons to that. But I think we are through the worst of it in New York, as best as I can tell. Well, that is certainly some good news to end on. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. It is always a treat to talk to you each and every Friday, Dr. Lusbader. Thank you so much for taking the time. All right, Berkshire Hathaway reporting earnings tomorrow. Uh, everybody's going to be looking at, obviously, for how the company is dealing with the current environment. But, of course, people really want to hear from Warren Buffett. And what is Warren Buffett and his team going to do with all that cash on the balance sheet? What's the next big deal? Kat Chiglinski joins us. She is our ace Bloomberg News reporter on uh, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, she joins us on the phone from New York City. Kat, thanks so much for joining us here. First question, really tough one. This might throw you back. Why did they report on Saturday? It's a weird quirk, and uh, it definitely makes for a busy week for all the reporters following <laughs> Berkshire. But uh, but it is uh, they he tends to actually like to report on days in which shareholders can take some time to look at the the um, release without getting swamped by too many too much coverage of it. So um, so you know he yeah he has the weird quirk, but uh, but he's he's loved to put it either on it gets Friday everybody's attention. I mean he's got the full attention of the marketplace. <laughs> True. And what about that cash that that Paul mentioned? What do we know about the types of deals that that Berkshire Hathaway is looking at right now? Well, and that's the biggest question, right? And, you know, Berkshire has 
simply too much cash and too few opportunities. They really haven't been able to strike a ton of deals recently. And, and that's been weighing on them for the past couple of years now, especially with the SPAC boom going on. Um, but one of the biggest questions is, will they have other avenues to deploy it? You know, Berkshire and Buffett have finally started doing more share buybacks. And we have a hint, you know, that they did at least uh, more than six billion dollars worth of buybacks in the quarter, which is a substantial amount. But when you're Berkshire and you're throwing off that much cash, you know, it's a little hard to tell if that's actually going to be able to keep up with the gushing flows of cash that um, the conglomerate produces. And I think that's going to be the biggest key. You know, a couple months ago, we learned that Greg Abel is in line to take over for Buffett once he uh, decides to step down. And I think <laughs> that's, that that's the that key there. Once he decides. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. And, you know, he's coming up on 91, Buffett is. So I'm, you know, I think he really loves to stick with this business. But every earnings from here on out, everyone's going to be scrutinizing it more because it's one thing to say, hey, you know, I'll give Warren Buffett the benefit of the doubts and maybe he can find, you know, another deal um, months down the line and it's worth him waiting. Um, It's another thing to say that, you know, hey, I'm going to give Greg Abel that benefit of the doubt. Do we have any idea how their investment philosophy, their operating strategy may change under a Greg Abel? Well, we know for certain that Greg Abel is going to face more pressure. And that might mean, you know, Buffett has long shied away from dividends. Um, He finds buybacks to be a much better use of shareholder return. You know, there is a chance, and analysts keep raising this point of, you know, Greg Abel might face more pressure to actually issue a dividend and have a one-time, you know, way to release that cash. We've also been seeing, and this is, you know, a little different from Berkshire. We um, There was a hint that Berkshire sold this vacuum cleaner company, Kirby, um, just in recent months. And so there is sort of this idea that maybe Berkshire is at a point in which it is really saying, look at all the companies we own, you know, are all of them sort of worth owning in the same way? And, and that could be something that potentially changes. But obviously, just one company down, we'll see um, whether they sort of take that tack with other ones. I think it's really notable that the company can't find deals right now, considering that we are likely going to see a record summer in terms of amount of money uh, spent on deals. Uh, and 2021 is looking like it's going to be a record year. So so what makes a, a, a Berkshire deal a Berkshire deal? Agreed. And, and I think actually Berkshire's pitch has just sort of been lost in the stream of capital that's coming after all these deals. I mean, Berkshire's pitch for a long time to potential companies is, hey, you know, if you're a family-owned business in particular and you want it to have a home at this conglomerate that will let you sort of run the business like you wanted to run it and give you that sort of freedom to handle things on your own, that autonomy, that's something to be found at Berkshire. And, and that's an enticing pitch, I think, for many companies. But when you have private equity and you have SPACs and you have all this money on the sidelines, you know, Buffett doesn't want to overpay for a deal. And so, you know, if other companies are willing to pay up um, for some of these acquisitions, Berkshire, you know, is going to lose. I'm looking at the uh, five-year chart that Comp Function, COMP, and over the last five years, Berkshire Hathaway has underperformed the S&P. Is there any pressure building? I think there's a lot of pressure building. Yeah, Berkshire has underperformed the S&P 500. And, you know, it's gotten to a point where I think people really question the size. I mean, it's a huge company. And when you look at all the array of businesses it's in, you know, sometimes that breadth is beneficial in that, you know, when one business is doing well, maybe another business is not, and it sort of offsets it. But I think the idea that there's not that many huge deals that Berkshire can find for a well-priced, you know, um, a well-priced, Uh, price. And and, right. and I think that sort of question is going to 
continue to make investors a little more cautious on the stock. Katja Glinsky, finance reporter for Bloomberg News. She's going to be up early covering <laughs> uh, Berkshire Hathaway earnings on Saturday morning, and we certainly appreciate that. What a busy week we've had in terms of earnings, in terms of economic data. Today, uh, we obviously had the jobs number uh, coming in better than expected. Markets generally moving higher. A lot of folks are trying to say, boy, is the next 5 to 7% move in this stock market higher? or lower. Let's check in with Ryan Dietrich. He's Chief Market Strategist for LPL Financial. Joins us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Tim, if you don't know it, Charlotte's a little town southwest of Durham, North Carolina, the home of Duke University. <laughs> Just want to point that out to you. All right, Small Ryan. Town, right? Let's, we, we've had a lot of earnings over the past couple of weeks. We've had a lot of economic data here. What say you about this equity market here? Well, guys, thanks for having me back. And before we go there, I do want to point out, we are right now at LPL, we're having what we call our focus conference with more than 10,000 of our advisors virtually. We had, speaking of Duke, we had Mike Krzyzewski virtually with our CEO, Dan Arnold, on Wednesday. And I'm not a huge Duke fan. I'll just get it out there. But it was an <laughs> incredible, for clearing the air speech, early with man. Paul Sweeney about that, okay? <laughs> there you go. But anyway, that, that, that's, my, that's my part about Duke. It was really cool at our focus event with our advisors. But right. listen, there's, like you said, I mean, there's the strong job number. The Fed is still accommodative. The economy is doing better than we thought. But what's also happening? We're making new highs, right? Today could be the 44th new all-time high so far this year. What in the world does that mean? Well, guys, when you look at previous years up to this point, only two had more new all-time highs, 95 and 64. And that's a small sample size. What happened then, those two previous years, markets continue to be really strong in 95. They did pretty good the second half of 64. So I think the truth is there's momentum behind this market. History would say you probably, well, you definitely want to continue to be a buyer of any dips. But to answer your question, could the next 5 or 7% be up or down? We wouldn't be surprised if it was down, right? We haven't had a 5% correction since last October. This is August, the worst month of the year in a post-election year. September is the worst month on average. October is obviously volatile. So we've been bullish, come on you guys, for a while. But I tell you, it makes sense. Maybe we could uh, be due for some normal third quarter volatility here. Ryan, what is it that, that, that sets the, that sends stocks lower? in the third quarter this year? What's yeah, the it very well could be... Yeah, it very well could be, you know, the Fed policy and the inflation and the worries there. At the same time, it's I know it's in the best answer, but it's sometimes the truth. It's just been a while since we've had any volatility. Markets sometimes just get volatile to be volatile. Um, but the inflation concerns are, are clearly still out there. And then also, hey, we're making new highs. People are pretty optimistic, right? I mean, sometimes when everyone's on one side of the boat, that's what can kind of uh, trip things up, if you will. You know, Jackson Hole, obviously, is a couple weeks from now. That's going to be, you know, very closely watched. And is, are they going to talk about tapering? or not, and what's what's it mean? What's the Fed think about inflation? And we've seen some pretty big policy decisions made at Jackson Hole over the years. So we're not saying that's the trip-up uh, situation, but that's just something to be aware of. And lastly, September, it's still out there. Remember, last September, guys, we had nearly a 10% correction. Honestly, no one probably remembers why it happened. We just had a big rally and then a 10% correction, pre-election jitters. Sometimes the calendar can just uh, be something you want to be, pay attention to. All right. So, Ryan, we're, you know, well through the earnings season here. We're going to have some of the yeah. uh, retailers coming up uh, next, some consumer names coming up next. How have you taken – have these earnings, they've been great uh, in terms of comparisons. Are they good enough for this market? 
Yeah, we think they are. We are making new highs as we speak. I mean, it's amazing, right? I mean, I know recent recent data says we might be up almost 90% year over year in the second quarter. Just a couple months ago, we were thinking, you know, about mid 50%. I mean, it's just amazing how quickly it's come up. So, but that's the key thing, right? It's all about expectations and, you know, clearing the bar. And the bar is getting higher and higher. I mean, just today's, again, today's number um, on the jobs number, obviously really strong. It's got some excitement. Look at the 10-year yield, right? The 10-year yield obviously has been surprising many to the downside, maybe potentially form a little double bottom with a nice move higher here. So we're, we're optimistic that earnings will continue to be strong, but we also think that early cyclical value group um, that has obviously struggled, uh, no question about it, the last two or three months, is still where you're going to find some leadership the second half of this year. And with the action on the 10-year, we're optimistic that maybe we found a technical bottom here and you can start having a higher 10-year, which should be a tailwind for banks, financials, and, and value in general. I know you're studying the technicals. I know you're looking at the technicals, but this is all happening in the background of the Delta variant spreading. Uh, We've been talking throughout the show about a potential softening in spending. There was some data from Bank of America, debit and credit cards yesterday. It said it decelerated meaningful spending. That is last week. And then today we got some news from Chase that said spending data has softened recently as well. Uh, How do you look at alternative data like that when you're thinking about where the market's going to go? Yeah, well, we obviously pay attention to it, but at the same time, we're almost back in that world where, well, is bad news good news, right? I mean, okay, so if the Delta variant is terrible as it is, and then the spending slows down, and we do see a little economic slowdown, because honestly, the jobs number was strong. A lot of that was before some of this Delta variant stuff, like, you know, kind of creep started creeping up again. So we have to have to look at it like that. But but again, if if things start to slow down, well, the Fed they've said what they've said, right? The Fed might actually you know keep policy low for a while and then ignore tapering for a little bit longer. So so. As strange as it sounds, and fiscal policy still out there, so bad news could be good news. We saw that a lot last year, right? I mean, this time a year ago, markets in the midst of a five-month win streak. I'm five-month win streak, and we had some of the worst headlines in our country's history. A lot of it was because, yeah, the economy came back, but that fiscal monetary policy is there. So it's it's just kind of the way. I guess you gotta you gotta look at it from a full picture point of view. And bad news could be good news from an investments point of view. Ryan, what are your investment professionals, you know, hearing from their clients these days? Uh, you know, it, I know there's that yep. wall of worry out there, and uh, you know, you can make the argument that um, it's higher than ever right now. So, what, what are they hearing? Yeah, I mean, great question there. So the two that we've been hearing a lot lately is Delta variant, which we just kind of touched on, and but also stagflation, right? I mean, stagflation is the idea clearly that the you know, inflation is going higher, the economy starting to weaken. So those are some of the things that are the concerns we're hearing about. Again, I mean, we're in the camp similar to the Fed that the inflation is probably transitory here, um, you know, and, and and yeah, we had two percent inflation for like a decade, and we might see two and a half, three percent for a couple years coming off the worst recession in our lifetime. That's that's not overly concerning to us, but we're. Watching watching it closely. But those are the two things we're hearing a lot about. And, and you're right, there is a fear of heights. I mean, people, everyone's optimistic, then you get a little correction. I remember the, the almost 5% correction back in the late January, early February at GameStop. I mean, that was only about a 5% correction, not quite, but almost. There was a lot of fear on that of modest pullback. So that's the thing we want to keep seeing. We're going to pull backs eventually. We want fear to come in, and that can be, you know, wash out the weak hands and continue the upward trajectory that we think we're still on. So when you see those meme stocks, and even Robinhood today, and and so on. Does that kind of point to you as a, boy, this is a sign of a frothy market, sign of a toppy Mm -hmm. market when you see those types of market behaviors? 
Yeah, and in the near term, absolutely can be. I mean, there's no doubt. Remember, Coinbase's IPO came out literally the day that uh, you know Bitcoin topped back in April. So you see, then Robinhood. So that's kind of out there. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the meme stocks are one thing. Meme stocks are one thing. But the truth is, hey, earnings are strong. I know valuations are stretched, but when you have the relatively low rates that we still have, yeah, you know, stocks might be expensive, but bonds are really expensive. So it still makes sense to us the second half of this year as we keep going. That stocks will do a little bit better than bonds, and value is probably going to do a little bit better than growth. That's how we're telling our more than 19,000 advisors how we see the world. Ryan Dietrich, Chief Market Strategist at LPL Financial, joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ryan, it is always a pleasure when you join us. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.